Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's been several days now of unrest, protests, and riots in many cities across the U.S. and the world, including in Salt Lake City, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. We're going to talk about it on Access Utah today. We're going to talk uh, later in the hour with Forrest Crawford, professor of teacher education at Weber State University and a founder of Utah's Martin Luther King Jr. Human Rights Commission. Maricela Martinez-Cola, assistant professor of sociology at USU, will join us. Jason Gilmore, USU assistant professor of communication studies as well. And we'll also be talking with Ross Peterson, emeritus professor of history at Utah State University. We begin with my conversation from earlier this morning with Riley Bringhurst, who's a Salt Lake City man who traveled to Minnesota uh, to join the protests there. And uh, I reached uh, Riley at the airport. He's uh, w- He was waiting to catch his flight back to Salt Lake City to return home. Uh, just a uh, disclaimer, uh, Riley Bringhurst is a nephew of our own Carrie Bringhurst. And uh, Carrie, in fact, connected me with uh, Riley uh, Bringhurst. Here's my conversation from uh, just uh, about an hour or so ago with Riley Bringhurst. So you, you live in Salt Lake, do you? Yes, I do. And uh, I've been living there for about three years. About three years, okay. You flew to Minnesota to, in order to join the protest, did you, or what, what happened? Yes, I did. Um, I was up all night, Thursday night, watching um, the protests and the riots and everything that happened. Um, that was the night where the officer was still not arrested or in custody, and um, that was also the night that the 3rd Precinct police station got burned down in Minnesota. So I was watching that all night, and um, a few things happened. Um, The fact that they got enough people together to take over the police station was really impressive, I thought. Um, And then one of the civil rights lawyers I follow on social media, Lee Merritt, um, was calling for people to get out there, if you can get out there safely, and support this. And then I actually have a friend who lives in Minnesota, I asked him um, how he's doing, and then he was saying it's a lot bigger than what the news is showing. He is saying the police are killing and shooting people, and that the police were the ones that started the looting, um, and everyone else joined it after. And then I said, like, hope you're safe. And he said, we don't care about being safe anymore. We are all dying for this cause. And then the last straw where I actually bought my ticket right then was when that CNN reporter got arrested on national TV while asking the officers what exactly they wanted him to do. And between all that, um, I just had to go. There was no way I was saying it out. So you bought a ticket, headed out. While you were out there, I've been watching some videos on your on your Facebook, uh, you, you did join some protests, right? Some marches? Yeah, um, I joined a lot of protests where people were standing around, um, all grouped around a megaphone, and there were a lot of speakers. And then those all would turn into marches at the end. Friday, when I got there, I went straight from the airport to downtown. I found a gathering happening outside of a government building, kind of on the north side of downtown. And there were a lot of Black Lives Matter speakers and um civil rights activists speaking outside this government building. And then after all the speakers were gone, people would continue to stay there and chant. And then um, we kneeled in front of this government building for nine minutes, looking at the police officers um, who were 
a story above us looking down, and they did not look us in the face at all. And then after that, um, a march came past where we were, and we all joined the march. We were, we were guessing that march was about 5,000 people, and um, we shut down both sides of the Hennepin Bridge, then turned around, and um, we shut down one direction of a federal highway. This was all just peaceful protesters just standing together, chanting, and then in a lot of places we would stop and take a knee. And in that in that protest, um, the community was very supportive. There were people yelling out the windows, supporting us. And then when we when we would cut off cars, they would they would honk to support us. Um, and then they would just turn around and drive around. We had we had one um, old man who didn't want to wait for us or turn around, and he drove through. And um, the leaders of that protest said, "Let him through. This isn't a violent protest. Just let him through." And then they were also very clear about um, not touching police cars at all. And then at the end of that protest, um, at curfew time, the leaders were saying, just go home, be safe, don't get blamed for anything that happens after the curfew. So I just went home at curfew that night. And then I saw a lot of people had actually ended up continuing to march after the curfew that night. So it looks like the curfew was pretty optional at that point. So Saturday night um, when I woke up, I went to a gathering at a memorial. We ended up setting up for George Floyd. There were a lot of people there. The initial plan was that we were going to sit at this intersection next to the 5th Precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department 24-7 until all four officers were arrested. But So there were a lot of people like up and down the block um, with food, water, and medical supplies ready to sit in for a long time. But what ended up happening at curfew is a lot of people came in saying um, we should march, so it's harder for us to get arrested or attacked. And it, it ended up splitting up into three or four marches that night. The march I ended up with was smaller, and we definitely weren't the main focus of the police because I think we were a bit smaller. But um, we kind of marched around, and every time we'd see police ahead of us, we'd turn around and march somewhere else. And then one weird thing with that was there was definitely someone nefarious in the group. It was kind of a 30-something white guy. He was carrying around a Bernie Sanders sign, which was really weird because none of this was about Bernie Sanders. Um, I think he was just trying to appear to be an ally. But he was talking really confidently that he always knew the way to go. Then he was talking over the black people leading the march and always pointing us in a different direction. And it seemed like very clear he was trying to lead us into either police or white supremacists. So there was definitely a lot of chaos, I'd say, with people not really knowing who to trust, since there were a lot of bad faith actors out all week. But we ended up being safe. We had tear gas shot at us a couple times. I think um, that was actually the place where the NBC reporter got hit by tear gas. And then later in the night, we had a direct standoff with State Patrol and National Guard, and um, we were we just kneeled and chanted in front of them, and they actually let us go. It seemed like wherever the National Guard was, there was a lot less chance of violence or anything like that. They, they seemed a lot more about peace than about sending messages of fear or hate. And then with that march, we stopped um, probably around 1 or 2 in the morning, 
people were exhausted from standing and marching and kneeling all day. And then when we went home, we, we walked past multiple policemen on the way to find this person's car. And none of them bothered us. They just told us to stay safe. I guess they were pretty confident we weren't looting. Well, dude, and then... Uh, sorry, I want to talk about uh, the rioting and the looting. Um, it sounds like the, the protests you were involved with were peaceful. Did you witness any rioting or looting, or what, and where does that come from, do you think? Um, on the way home Saturday night, we saw one person. He broke the back window of someone's Jeep. This was, like, past midnight. This was when we finally found our car, and um, we were on our way. There were, my friends I had met were dropping me off at the hotel, and um, we saw this white kid. He was late teens, early 20s, break the back window of a Jeep with a fire extinguisher. And um, we actually stopped the car and got out and scared him away. But that was just one person. And it was kind of in a small neighborhood. It wasn't downtown. Definitely an opportunist there. There was no one else around. You ended up getting arrested, right? Yes. So today, I don't know if you saw the news, um, or I guess yesterday, there was a gathering at um, the highway under Washington Bridge. And at that gathering, someone driving a, a gas tanker evaded the closure of the highway to get in and drive his tanker into a group of thousands of people. And um, people were very upset about that. So when curfew ended, we decided there was a march that started at the memorial at the 5th Precinct and pretty much went all the way across downtown to end up at that Washington Bridge where the tanker drove into all those protesters. And um, that was led by a guy, I think they were like the Breathe Initiative, but it was a guy in a suit older than us. Um, and he, he had a very clear message. Um, he was like, this is a peaceful protest. Um, one chant we will not do is ask the police. We will not instigate violence and all of that. And then he said, um, we're going to go to Washington Bridge and we're not going to leave. And um when we were there, we were surrounded on all four sides by, it was both Minnesota State Patrol and then also Minneapolis Police. And um, they slowly closed in over the course of about an hour. Curfew started at 8. I got arrested about 8.45. And we we were very peaceful. There was one person who had brought a baton, and the leaders actually went and took it to him and like made it very clear we're not doing that. And then I think one kid was about to throw a rock and got stopped. But everyone was completely peaceful. Under, aside from that, um, there were people that did some yelling at the police because emotions were very high. We're surrounded by all these people who were protesting against, and they were heavily armed. And then there was some unprofessional things happening, too. They shot a rubber bullet or two into our crowd and to a small woman and her boyfriend as well. And then after they, they did that, because I think they thought it would make it easier for them to surround us because everyone panicked when this girl went down. And then um, when they were surrounding us, one of the Minneapolis Police Department officers was pointing his less lethal gun at people's faces from five feet away while hiding behind a riot shield. And we were actually, we were actually asking all the other officers around to restrain this guy because... He was kind of like a stereotypical hothead, like red-faced, yelling his head off, just looking for a reason to shoot people. And after like 
five to ten minutes of pleading with officers. One of the state patrol, who looked some older than this guy, was able to get him to put his gun down. But we all got arrested peacefully. It was a very long process. We were standing on the sidewalk waiting for vans for at least an hour. Then we were waiting in a van for a couple hours. Then we were waiting in the back of a bus because they couldn't put us in the jail for hours. But we eventually all got out. We were cited with unlawful assembly. And then when we finally got out, there were people from the National Lawyers Guild waiting to take our information. And they said they would contact us. And then they were giving out food, water, and rides home as well. So you're uh, you're now uh, waiting for your flight home. Yeah, I'm flying home in a few minutes. Of course, protests have spread uh, nationwide, including Salt Lake City. Do you think you'll join the protests in Salt Lake uh, when you come home? Um, I'm not sure if I will. I'm thinking I'll probably self-quarantine for a couple weeks because there's a pretty good chance um, I was exposed to the COVID virus. So I might just self-quarantine for Mm -hmm. a couple weeks, then see what's happening after then. So that's my conversation with Riley Bringhurst. Uh, He's a Salt Lake City man, as you heard there, uh, about to catch his flight home to Salt Lake City. Uh, He had uh, flown into Minneapolis over the the past few days to uh, participate in protests uh, there. Um, And as you've been reading, of course, seeing uh, on the news, there's been several days now of unrest, protests, and riots in many cities across the U.S. and the world, including Salt Lake City, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. Uh, Following a break, we're going to uh, talk about this with a uh, panel of uh, guests. We'll uh, uh, launch into that discussion following this uh, break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And support for UPR's debunked podcast is fr- comes from the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. UPR is also supported by Idaho National Laboratory. Truck drivers moving critical COVID-19 supplies have a new app to help them navigate state restrictions. More information about how INL researchers met this urgent need is available at INL.gov. The Utah Debate Commission has organized several debates ahead of Utah's primary election, which is coming at the end of June. We'll have those debates for you on Utah Public Radio on Monday and Tuesday. Those debates include a 4th Congressional District Republican debate, 1st Congressional District Democratic debate, Utah Governor Republican debate, Utah Attorney General Republican debate, and 1st Congressional District Republican debate. Those debates are Monday, noon, 3 and 6 p.m., and Tuesday at noon and 3 p.m., all on Utah Public Radio. That's today and tomorrow here on UPR. Stay with us throughout the day. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. As you know, uh, protests have spread around the U.S. and uh, areas around the world as well, including Salt Lake City, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. We're going to talk about it on the program today. And uh, we welcome in Forrest Crawford, who is professor of teacher education at Weber State University, uh, founder of Utah's Martin Luther King Jr. Human Rights uh, Commission. Uh, uh, Dr. Crawford, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Pre- appreciate you joining us. We're also going to be talking with Maricela Martinez-Cola, assistant professor of sociology at USU. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Jason Gilmore uh, joins us, USU Assistant Professor of Communication Studies. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. And Ross Peterson, Emeritus Professor of History at USU, is on the line with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so I just want to uh, go around the panel here, to, uh, open-ended question, uh, general reaction. What's uh, first on your mind uh, since it's been, what, six or seven days now? Uh, just extraordinary events around the around the country. Um, so I'll start with uh, Forrest Crawford. What's, what's top of mind for you as, as you've been thinking about this? Well, just kind of as an initial thought, and, and, and thank you for, ha- for having me on your show. Um as I as I've been um, listening to the um, event, um, first of all, it was nothing really uh, surprised me. In in other words, um, I feel like that that it was very um, um, likely that as a result of the um, um, feelings and the incidents that has gone on across the United States um, that all of these uh, uh, insurrections um, are not surprising whatsoever, and even more so in Salt Lake City. And so... I think that the uh, the protests and and the um, um, the, the protests that that have been going on across the United States and and, and certainly in in Utah um, has been very um, timely, but, uh, but also. Unfortunate, um, but I think that one of the things to keep in mind is that um, oftentimes when these protests come about, it's always precipitated by a major um, event that has happened in the community. Uh, um, most recent with the um, uh, George Floyd. Uh, uh, death, uh, but you can think of think of the other um, insurrections that have taken place historically. Um, uh, those events take place under similar situations where there were, there's been a a particular uh, incident that has happened in the community that as that cause people to, to to rise to their uh, to their concern. Mm. Uh, so, uh, same question to you, Marisela Martinez Cola. What's top of mind for you as you watch these uh, events unfold? You know what? Uh, for me, what comes to mind is honestly, I've been meditating a lot on Sandy Lou Hamer's word, at the, uh, famous quote at the 1964 uh, DNC, where she said, "I'm just I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired." Um, right. And that's what I'm sensing from people. And, and, you know, I think the thing that is so challenging is that this really is making people sick. You know, that, that racism and oppression is an illness. It's a public health issue, honestly. And people are tired because this has been happening, you know, as Dr. Crawford said, 
you know, from the beginning, 1965 watch riots, 1967 Detroit riots, you know, um, the murder of Fred Hampton, the murder of Ruben Salazar, all throughout history, right. we just have, you know, all these examples. And I think that this is really hard because you have a pandemic meeting police brutality, and both of those are really very stressful on right. the body and the mind. Yeah, that's it's 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 pretty extraordinary the pandemic and everything going on there and and, and now this. Uh, so, uh, Jason Gilmore, what what's top of mind for you? Um, you know, I I would echo uh, what both Professor Crawford and um, Martinez Colab uh, said in that you know history has we need to keep a keen eye on history for sure, right? Because this is obviously a manifestation. Not that something new. It, we need to understand that this keeps happening uh, in our communities time and time again, decade after decade after decade. Um, so keeping a keen eye on history, I think, is really important to understand just the, the, the fact that when somebody says, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, it's, it's because of something that is foundational uh, to the history of the nation. Um, the other thing that's kind of top of the mind for me is the where do we go from here question. The how can this be, uh, you know, how can we learn from this? How can, how can people use the momentum of this movement uh, to do our best to try and ensure that it doesn't happen again decade after decade after decade into our future? Um, you know, uh, so thinking about what are the ways to... To, to a certain extent, institutionalize this. Barack Obama wrote a piece uh, this morning talking about uh, <clears throat> it's not whether we need protest or politics, it's that we need both. We need people out making sure that their representatives or representatives uh, uh, or their representatives understand that their concerns, that they hear their voices, um, but that we also need to infuse more people with these types of view into political positions so that they can create the institutional changes that are needed. So those are the spaces that my mind have been in the the past few days, for sure. Probably more than that. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll follow up, of course, on on everything everybody's saying here. Uh, I want to get top of mind from Ross Peterson. What what have you been thinking about? Well, everything I've been thinking about, uh, in all honesty, my three predecessors have talked about some of the things that I've noted, um, I guess in a, in a personal, more reflective way of my own career, the closest uh, I thought that uh, this last week, uh, the closest I've seen historically was after Dr. King was uh, assassinated in April of 68, when, you know, so many cities... So many people in many cities filled with despair, filled with frustration, and having an apostle of hope and nonviolence assassinated, it just, uh, you know, blew up everywhere. And then, of course, uh, when Jason was talking, I was, I was reminded, and, and also some of the others, of too often the people in power, you know, want to blame someone else, and they want to, you know... Uh, there are a lot of things that happened in the late 60s. All of a sudden, um, President Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover and John Mitchell, they're blaming the Black Panthers. And this led to you know, almost an extermination of their leadership. And 
So, you know, suddenly yesterday people were talking about Antifa. They, they always fail to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is, in spite of what we've written on paper for many, many years, from the Declaration of Independence to the preamble to the Constitution, that we really have been unable to fulfill those lofty goals and have an inclusive society that provides for the general welfare of all the people. And I guess that's what's been, as well as trying to, you know, think toward the future, but I've done that too many times in the past, that uh, it's, you know, we've got to work a lot, lot harder to create some economic equity as well as political equity and give people hope. And as brought out, you know, during a time of economic distress and and 40 million people on unemployment, uh, this could have been a lot worse, and it may get worse because a lot of the young people have nothing on their hands now but time. Hmm. I want to treat uh, it. I'll start. I'll, I'll just uh, go in the same order uh, here for this question, starting with uh, Forrest Crawford. Um, so the conversations I've been having with, with, uh, with friends, uh, admittedly this is not a perhaps a representative sample, but... Uh, some friends say this is, you know, totally understandable that these protests are happening and, and, you know, an expression of sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? But, um, but the protesters cross the line when it gets into violence and, uh, riots and, and looting and property damage, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you say to that? Well, I don't think that any of us desires violence uh, as a ultimate solution. Um, what I think is that the violence is a manifestation of our inability to engage in proper discourse, uh, to, to engage in proper uh, discourse, um, you know, with key elements of the community. And so if you think about Watch Riot as an example, or if you think about the, the um, um, uh, civil rights um, insurrections that had gone on, much of those situations um, had to do with part of the community um, disconnecting themselves from the concerns of of the citizens. And the citizens, the only way that they're able to react and respond is to, you know, bring about this type of of um of of imbalance and, and this this type of uh uh of uh uh it's a challenge and attack on the community. And so, in short, I, I, I really feel like that that part of uh, what's missing in all of these scenarios is a part where we just cut each other off and just assume that what you have to say and what you have experienced is not as important or is not as relevant as as um, you know trying trying to keep peace and order. Hmm. 
Mm. And what we find is that that there's a um, a complete uh, contradiction uh, uh, to um, the f- the fact that that you know people are not being heard. Marisela Martinez Cola, what, what do you think about this question of violence? Well, I think that it's um it's really interesting because I think there's a lot of question as to who's really starting a lot of these um sort of where it starts to turn um, into more kind of uh, you know breaking of property, um, burning things. I think there's a lot of questions out there. There's stuff all over social media of, of people getting you know videoed and photographed that are not necessarily connected. Uh, to the organizations that are organizing um, the protest. And so, you know, there's a lot of question about that. But even even then, I think what you're, what you're starting to see, it's remarkable because somebody was telling me, well, why are they, you know, burning down their own neighborhood? And mm-hmm. the only way I could think about remind, is talking to them is you have to understand that's not their neighborhood. That has never mm-hmm. been their neighborhood. They may live there, but they rent. They don't own. I mean, even there in Minneapolis, right, I think the – the white ownership rate of homes is 74%, and for um, black residents there, it's about 23%. And I think there's this idea that when you've been told over and over and over again that you don't belong, that you uh, that your cause is not worthy, some, you know, this is something that um, I don't ask why it's happening. I, I'm not surprised, again, why it does. And, you know, uh, this, these communities... People of color, we pay a big price. It's a very hefty price. We rent, but we pay really high rates for it. And I think that's one of the things that I don't think a lot of people understand, um, is that if we understand fundamentally that if, if, if they really want to change, everybody's like, you just got to change is slow, change is slow. I'm like, no, it's not. If a developer wants to gentrify an area, they can do it, like, within a few years. You know, when the police were getting militarized, that happened maybe over what? I'll be, I'll be generous and say a decade, right? So I just feel like when something is wanted and it's a priority, it can happen quickly. And as long as you keep telling people to wait, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. Jason Gilmore, right. uh, uh, your, your, your thoughts on this, on the, on the violent, when it, uh, go, you know, peaceful protests and then, and then we get into violence. Yeah, I, I think the problem... Um, a lot of the time is that um, uh, I think people are looking for arguments uh, to completely and utterly ignore um, and deny that there's a problem by simply pointing to the violence. The violence is, is atrocious, and I'm, I'm, I can't condone it. Um, to a certain extent, I, as uh, Professor Martinez Cola was saying, I, I think we can understand how people have been pushed to the point but I think the problem is is that people are looking for uh, looking to the violence as a reason to completely and utterly deny that there's a problem at all, and um, not separating out the fact that there are people on the, the streets who are enforcing uh, peaceful, nonviolent protest um, while things erupt around them, while other people co-opt the, the movement uh, for opportunism. Um, but there are people on the ground, that, uh, I think uh, the interview at the top of the hour uh, exemplified that, that they were looking to be peaceful and that, that you know, there were elements in, in the crowds that erupted around them. But if, we're, if, we're, if we keep on using the argument to deny, then we're going to find ourselves here again in 
know, a month, a year, 10 years, 50, 60 years down the road. Um, right. Yeah, there's violence. But there's also systemic problems with racism. There's also systemic problems that need to be addressed, uh, regardless of the fact that that violence has erupted. And time and time again, it just sounds like we're not hearing the voices of people who have been screaming uh, injustice for so long. Mm. Ross Peterson, you you made reference to this a little early in the program. Uh, I want to revisit this. Uh, have we seen anything like this to this level? So what What's the... Where, where do you go back to, 1968? Well, actually, unfortunately, as, as other people brought out, I mean, there was, you can start so many different places, but uh, I remember reading after the Detroit riots and after, uh, you know, Reverend King's assassination, they issued a, what was called the Kerner Commission Report on, you know, on... American and violence, and uh, at the same time, a journalist by the name of, of African-American journalist Louis Lomax, who wrote a book called The Negro Revolt, but he also wrote an essay on how to start a race riot. And uh, and unfortunately, what he said is that it often starts with, with the police arresting a young black man for a minor charge, and then uh, in the abuse that follows, it just a community erupts, and I think that's happened many, many times. But uh, and I think of uh, you know what what came to mind, and it was printed yesterday in the Tribune. A quote from Malcolm X that uh, when he said, "That's not a tip on my shoulder; that's your foot on my neck." And and the relationship between a community and police is often the thing that ignites a situation that uh, has been smoldering for a long time, but. But for me, the, you know, it goes back to what Jason was saying because the and the history of, uh, of the violence right after World War One, when many African American communities within cities were having prosperity and having banks and insurance companies and things like that, there were you know the yesterday was the hundredth anniversary of when uh, Ku Klux Klan and police and others literally destroyed a community. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, over 300 people killed, and uh, you know, just unbelievable, just marching in there and destroying lives. And then there's an incident in Florida and East St. Louis, all during that same period. And of course, uh, the, the racism that exists uh, is just something that you know we had hoped with Brown versus Board of Education. We'd hope education might be the answer, equal opportunity through education. And then, you know, through the Civil Rights Acts and things, uh, voting rights. But it's a constant struggle. And uh, and in a way, that's what all a lot of the frustration is about, is, you know, it's two steps forward, three steps back. And I think in part it's, uh, it's a leadership issue. In part it's uh, an inability to define and, uh, and really point at the specific things and then give them long-term commitments so that that particular situation can be solved in some ways. And it isn't just, it, it isn't just racial, it's gender and a variety of other things that I think need to be addressed as a society. And so, you know, it, it has a long, long history, 
uh, and it's unfortunate that we still have to teach it, but we do, and we need to teach it more and hopefully uh, get people elected and committed to bringing about the change that's necessary that we don't have to relive it every few years. Let's uh, take a, another break, then when we come back, we'll have more from our, our panel. We're talking about uh, the uh, the unrest, the protests in many cities across the U.S. and in the world as well, including Salt Lake City since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It happened on May 25th, several days now of uh, protests. Uh, we're talking with uh, Forrest Crawford, professor of teacher education at Weber State University and a founder of Utah's Martin Luther King Jr. Human Rights Commission, Maricela Martinez-Cola, assistant professor of sociology at USU, Jason Gilmore, USU assistant professor of communication studies, and Ross Peterson, emeritus professor of history at USU. You're welcome to join this conversation by email with your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break. Over the past several weeks, National Public Radio has been broadcasting a special program called The National Conversation. We've had that for you in the evenings here on Utah Public Radio. Beginning on Monday, NPR is discontinuing that program, and so our evening lineup reverts to the way it was before. Access Utah evening broadcast will begin at 7 p.m. as it happens at 8, and performance today will once again begin at 9 p.m. We just wanted to alert you to these uh, scheduled changes. And as always, thanks so much for listening to Utah Public Radio. That shift begins tonight here on UPR. Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to present the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. And this artist contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. From now until September 4th, we'll be accepting submissions and then you'll get to vote on your favorite design. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download. For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your submissions to katie.swain at usu.edu. Celebrate nature and art. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you well know, it's been several days of unrest and protests in many cities across the U.S. and the world, including Salt Lake City, since the death of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis. That happened on May 25th. Uh, this, of course, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, very extraordinary events unfolding across the U.S. We're talking about it on the program today. Earlier in the hour, we talked with a young man uh, from Salt Lake City who traveled to Minneapolis to join the protests there. And he's on his way back to uh, Salt Lake City now. And uh, this part of the program, we're talking with Forrest Crawford, professor of teacher education at Weber State University, uh, Mar Maricela Martinez-Cola, assistant professor of sociology at USU, Jason Gilmore, <coughs> excuse me, USU assistant professor of communication studies, and Ross Peterson, emeritus professor of history at USU. You can get your question or comment to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to, uh, in this last segment of the program, move uh, toward ideas for uh, solutions. Of course, it is a quandary. Um, uh, start to, with the Forrest Crawford with this. It, and it seemed, you, you made reference to this, that, that out of frustration at times, a portion of the community you know, just separates itself. seems like we've just got, 
we've got those separations, those divides uh, all over the, the country. Uh, a part of the country just wants to move on from questions of race. Uh, other parts of the country are sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think uh, solutions are? Well, <clears throat> there, there's a um, variety of, of solutions uh, that, that can be considered. I feel like the most significant uh, that there has to be uh, um, constructed a, a ongoing a, a opportunity for ongoing discourse, and 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 not just for not just for the moment. In other words, um, don't organize a a um, exploration panel. When the when the incident happens, I think it has to be ongoing, and I think it has to be systemic. That it has to be part of the school discourse. I think it has to be part of the the community discourse, and and but I also think that on occasion we have to come together and just say, what do we know? What have we learned? You know, uh, what do we need to do different in the event that this that this takes place. So my feeling is is to organize um, uh, a discourse not for the purposes of when something uh, happens, but um, as a systemic way in which we can all learn and educate uh, uh, each other. When these incidents happen, they happen in part because there's a disconnect between um, my relationship to you and and um, uh, my relationship to to you and 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 vice versa. So so when when that happens, it's just like we don't have anything to say to each other. Let's just you know, um, let's just uh, uh, fight it out. And and so, but I think that if there is a perennial uh, opportunity where there's ongoing and continual uh, discussion about what is wrong in the community, what do we observe, how do we uh, combat this particular um, um, rise in our, our community? So I I just feel like that. In short, that. <clears throat> Uh, that we have to um, create a, a condition where uh, there is a, a opportunity and genuine ongoing um, uh, discussion. I know that, that there are um, leaders throughout the community, Representative Hollins and and others uh, 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 throughout the community, who has called for. Uh, these dialogues uh, to, to take place. But my view is not because we have a particular incident that's on hand, but because we, uh, we anticipate kind of a, an, an ongoing uh, discussion about what's relevant, what's important, what we care about, and so forth. 
We uh, have an email that's come in. I want to address that uh, now. We'll put a pause on talk about solutions and then uh, make sure we get everybody in on this. So I'll read the email and then anybody who on the panel who wants to uh, comment on this, and we'll go back to solutions. So this is Steve. Uh, Steve says, Tom, in response to what you've heard in conversations with friends and acquaintances to the effect that protests are perfectly understandable but rioting crosses the line, one must agree two additional points to be considered. In many cities, the, the police response to protests has been out of proportion and violent, which has engendered a similar response from protesters. Uh, too many American police forces have been militarized, and police training too often emphasizes the unnecessary use of force. I'm sure you've read the reports of police SUVs driving through groups of protesters or police arresting black journalists but not white ones, or the cadre of police officers in one city walking through a residential neighborhood shooting civilians sitting on their own porches, etc. Violence begets violence. And second point, there are also credible reports of agents, uh, agent uh, provocateurs, uh, masquerading as uh, protesters creating mayhem with the intention of impugning peaceful protesters. Uh, me, I agree with your friends and acquaintances that protesters have every reason to protest and that violence crosses the line. Where the complexity arises is that the line is being crossed by police as well as protesters themselves. That's uh, Steve. So anyone on the panel want to respond to, to what Steve uh, said? Kind of hard to raise your hand on, on, the, on the radio, but... Uh, you could <laughs> you just jump in if you want to respond. The enforcement officer. Uh, I think Forrest Crawford uh, wants to go ahead. Yes. Okay. Yes, I apologize. The 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 enforcement uh, community um um they know that that what's important to their role in the community is that they respond to any of these uh, 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 particular. Uh, uh, incidents. So they don't. They don't have to. They don't have to raise their hand and and actively participate in the discussion. All they have to do is be prepared to react to uh, any incident that takes place um, uh, in 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 the community. My view is that um, I think that the law enforcement has to join with the community at large in saying that you are a part of me, I am a part of you. Let's continue to have this conversation about how best we can uh, um, intervene to, to make things better. All right. And I think I'll just uh, I'll just go in order. The panel will we'll have to keep our, our uh, uh Response is brief, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. We have about uh, six minutes left in the program. Uh, Steve wrote back in and says, no doubt you've heard the reporting from NPR about protests in cities in England, Germany, New Zealand, and elsewhere, demonstrating in front of American embassies in solidarity with American protesters. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Steve, for reminding us about that. And uh, then uh, Susan has uh, written in, uh, hi, Tom, I'm wondering what your guests today think of the End White Silence initiative. I'm also wondering what they think average white citizens can do in places like Utah, where there's low African-American population, less than 2%, according to the latest census. We can send financial support to organizations such as the Urban League, Southern Poverty Law Center, and Black Lives Matter and other areas. But is there something we should be doing locally? So does the low black population result in more discrimination here? Are there other minority groups that need uh, white support? Thank you. That's uh, Susan. So I'll just go next to Maricela Martinez-Cola. Any response you'd like to make to Susan? And then uh, very briefly, uh, solutions we were talking about. Sure. Um, thank you 
Susan, for uh, mentioning that. Um, I've heard about the end white silence uh, sort of uh, gathering that was supposed to happen. That's supposed to happen here in Logan. And when I first read about it, I thought that it was for white allies, that white allies were going to go there and sort of, you know, sort of talk to each other. And, you know, um, but I've been hearing that um, they've been asking people of color to be a part of that. And it was first at the, you know, the the Logan police station. And now it's being moved to the to the courthouse. Um, but I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. Honestly, I'm uncomfortable with with it being organized by somebody who has to ask who the Black Lives Matter leadership is or who are the black leaders in Logan um, that they can connect with. And so I just, I'm cautious, I should say, about that. But I do love that people are trying. When I first read about it, I was like, good good job for you. This is is exactly what, you know, would be really helpful is that if people could start to educate themselves, and that's what's been really encouraging, you know, is that you've been seeing all these people asking you know, what, what books can I read to my kids? What books can I read so I can be a better, you know, um, ally and be able to understand? And I think that, you know, unfortunately, this institution, I think as a professor, I was talking to my husband this morning and I told him that it feels like I'm trying to break down this institution brick by brick, student by student. And that's really all I can do. That's what it feels like at times. And it's like if I can just start to help people understand that, especially the ones that are tired of talking about racism. Imagine the people who are tired of living with racism. I mean, there's been 473 years. Let's be generous and say it started 1492 to 1965. 473 years of systemic, legalized, overt forms of oppression. And it cannot be erased in 54 years of still systemic, now illegal, and starting more covert and overt. It can't be erased in 54, so 54 years. And I think that people just need to really sort of hopefully understand that we need to go from you or me to you and me to you are me. And until your reality is as trans, until I am as transformed by your reality as you are by mine, I don't know how far we're going to really be able to get. Let's uh, turn next to uh, Jason Gilmore. Your, your, uh, I guess, final thoughts, uh, solutions, or any reaction to the emails, or anything you'd like to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I have way much more to say than I have time for, but uh, I'll try and sum it up. In you know, as 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 a white person uh, myself, I have to kind of think of what my role uh, is in all of this, and understanding that you know there are. Uh, a number of us in different power positions throughout the nation, just to answer the question of what people can do, it's not always just about reaching out to uh, minority communities to help them out. I'm not saying that that's not part of the solution, but sometimes it's about um, having the conversations within your own community and being willing to be one of the people that stands up and says, I'm not going to put up with denialism. This is a problem. This is something we need to learn more about. Um, I think a lot of the times uh, people in white communities just don't know how to engage, and they've had no no ability to engage. Um, and sometimes that, that work starts at home. You know, it starts in your own community. It starts by normalizing conversations about these issues that, that need to be addressed. And the more conversations you have, the more with more people who are in empowered positions, they might start to institute institutional change. Um, 
right? So, so there are. It's a multifaceted way that you can get involved. That just that doesn't just involve getting or doesn't just well, yeah, involved getting involved in, in protests. Or, um, so I think people need to get creative, but they they also need to understand the power of their own influence within their own communities. Uh, just before we go to final word from Ross Peterson, uh, Susan has written back in. She says the gathering in Logan mentioned by Professor Martinez Cola uh, has been canceled. So just that information. Um, so uh, Ross Peterson, we'll get we'll give you the the last word here. Well, I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to join colleagues who have dedicated their lives to, to teaching and trying to educate, and then through their own lives, be examples. Of, of how we can try to do things better. And I think we need to do more and more of that. But, the, you know, the teaching is, is what we do and, uh, and make people aware of, of the history and the legacy, but also how you change the hearts and minds of people. And I remember it's been about 15 years, maybe 14 years ago, that the Martin Luther King Commission was trying to get to the state of Utah this legislature to not open on Reverend King's birthday, on a national holiday. And they kind of did it, and Utah was one of the last states to actually recognize the holiday. And uh, I was asked to go down and speak to, to the legislature, and they did it in two different houses. And, you know, he gave a speech about Dr. King and about that, and, and uh, you know, and then he just individually went around to all these people and said, this change is stop being stupid. And, you know, I, I'm a white guy, a Mormon, that taught civil rights since the 1960s down in Texas and up here in Utah. And, uh, and you know, finally they changed it. But, but you just have to keep hammering and keep trying and educate the children and, and do it in such a way that they can carry the banner in the future. All right, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, much more we could say, but we're out of time. Uh, so we we appreciate uh, our our panel. Uh, Forrest Crawford is professor of teacher education at Weber State University and a founder of Utah's Martin Luther King Jr. Human Rights Commission. Uh, 